This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to this episode of The Vine Guy. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming Ben Jordan, the winemaker at Early Mountain in all places, Virginia. Now, Ben oversees all aspects of winemaking, vineyards, and production at Early Mountain. He's a native Virginian who began his winemaking career in Sonoma County. Ben previously held the position of general manager and winemaker with Michael Schaap's Wineworks. He brings to Early Mountain a philosophy representative of his mission to craft high-quality wines that showcases a commitment to the vineyard and the expression of a place. Ben works with his brother to run his family's vineyard in the Shenandoah Valley and makes an aromatized wine called War and Rust. <laughs> kind of an appropriate place in Virginia to have that. Outside of the wine world, Ben enjoys spending time with his wife, Laura, and his two daughters. Ben is a graduate of Duke University and received his MFA from Carnegie Mellon University. And definitely going to want to hear about that. So, Ben, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be here. <laughs> and in the middle of harvest, no less. So thank you very much for taking the time out to uh, step out of the tank room and, and uh, spend some time with me. But I have to start the interview. I've got to ask. You've got a graduate. You know, you're a graduate of Duke University. You received an MFA from Carnegie Mellon University. Tell me about the circuitous route that you took to being a winemaker now at Early Mountain. Yeah, circuitous so is, is the right word. It's, that's actually one I use pretty often. So when you get an MFA in playwriting, you, a lot of people move to New York, which is what I did. Um, and uh, like a lot of probably other people that do the same thing, I didn't get paid for writing plays. Uh, so I need a job and got a job uh, working wine retail um, in New York City. And because of the fact that, you know, it was in New York, people are bringing wines from around the world to New York. And I had a couple of great mentors uh, teaching me the ropes. I fell for wine in the way that um, those of us in the, in the industry do kind of realized at that point in time that I would love to continue uh, along the wine path in terms of my career in terms that the question gets asked is whether I'm still playwriting that not a whole lot right now. I think part of the problem was that I was a little too young to have good stories for, for those plays. So maybe in, another 10, 20 years, I'll return to it and have more, more life stories to put into it. Uh, but now it's, it's, it's all wine. Uh, but because of that, um, at the, at the same time, my grandfather and my dad and my brothers were doing some experimental planting at our, uh, farm in the Shenandoah Valley, uh, just with the idea that we might want to be part of, of the industry in Virginia, the growing industry. And so, jumped on an opportunity to move back to California. I'd lived in California previous to Carnegie Mellon um, and uh, worked for an importer out there that was mostly French wines. Um, but because they were in San Francisco, they had, um, they had some uh, relationships with, with mostly growers up in Sonoma County, Napa Valley, so Northern California. Um, and it's through those sort of connections that I, found a way into the production side of the industry. Basically, because my family was getting more and more into the vineyard side of things, I realized I should probably explore the making of wine and not just the selling of wine. So took a harvest internship in Sonoma County um, and then kind of never looked back from, from winemaking. Uh, really fell even harder for the, for the making of the wine and the kind of work that you do, the way that it's seasonal in terms of the rhythms of of growing and, and making wine. So really learned winemaking in both the Russian river and dry Creek. 
And, you know, wine is basically turning grape sugar into, into alcohol. So that's pretty similar in both California and Virginia. Um, but when I came back to Virginia, uh, by way of working for Michael Schaps at Wineworks, it, it would just definitely a, ch- a change in culture, uh, because the growing of the grapes is, is very different, but, uh, but also the wines we make, we, we do a lot of different grapes that are lesser known and the styles are certainly different than, than California. So it was definitely a change, uh, moving from the foundational stuff that I got in California to learning what Virginia was all about. You, you've said something very interesting saying, you know, turning grape sugar into wine alcohol, uh, doesn't have a lot to do with uh, getting a, de- a degree in uh, an MFA. So, and, and I don't see anywhere on here, Davis or Fresno or San Luis Obispo, uh, you know, is in terms of, you know, maybe a, a kind of more of a formal route to winemaking. You really were just a, an apprentice who came up through the ranks and learned by doing. Uh, my undergrad, uh, education was, I, was a bachelor of science. Um, and I didn't major in biology, but really focused a lot in biology. So kind of have a basic understanding of the science of things through that. Uh, but you know, in California, um, especially if you get into, you know, slightly bigger wineries of which the the first one was a relatively larger winery. Um, there is a lot of science just applied on a day-to-day basis. Um, and my first full-time job was half in the lab and half in the cellar. So it was a really great way to get up to speed on both, you know, the physical nature of, of what we do, but, but also just kind of understand the chemistry of it. But yes, no formal education, because by the time I got my MFA, I was not going back to school. Again. <laughs> I can understand that. And very cool, by the way, I think it's very unique uh, route for, for winemakers and actually a really good story for people who maybe just want to jump into the wine world. It's a, it's a good way for you know, people to kind of say, you know what, maybe I can do this too. So I, I like the story. A lot of wine lovers may not be aware that there's both a long history of winemaking in Virginia and now including a modern burgeoning wine industry. Can you just kind of give me a, a brief overview of that? There's a focus put on, you know, Thomas Jefferson um, working at, at Monticello and maybe too much along those lines, but you know, it is part of the history of, of Virginia but he wasn't overly successful. So I don't know if there's a whole lot to talk about there, but pre-prohibition, there was actually um, a significant industry on the East coast in general. Um, And, you know, some of it was vinifera, but there was, you know, hybrids, uh, natives. It it was just a, it was kind of a, just an industry to make wine for, for people to drink. Um, And then prohibition really destroyed that, especially for Virginia, The, the kind of modern era of, of Virginia is definitely post-prohibition. It's really in the past few decades. Um, and some of the pioneers of Virginia have really kind of hung their hats on, on vinifera because during, especially in the past few decades, it's been an important, it's been important to wine lovers that we, that we drink wines that are from these grapes that, that people know, but the entire time there have been hybrids planted, um, and stuff like Norton have, have always been important to the industry. Um, but it's really in the past, like I said, the past few decades that uh, Virginia, as we know it today has formed itself. Um, and it's based on the work of a, a number of folks. Uh, but there's, you know, names you hear again and again are Barbersville, um, the Gabrielle Rousey, Jim Law at Linden, um, 
books uh, at, uh, you know, Horton and, and Chrysalis uh, as just being pioneers who, you know, either helped shape the way wines are made here, the way we think about the way we grow grapes, or having even, you know, introduced the grapes uh, here that, that wouldn't have wouldn't have been in the industry otherwise stuff like petite men saying and Tanat and Viognier uh, grapes that weren't, weren't, you know, even though they were never, they're not brand name grapes to the, to the average consumer. But I, you know, I think there was a real acceleration um, because of their work and really in the past 10 or 15 years, the industry has exploded in terms of both, you know, we're not, we're still not big, but quantity wise, we've really grown a lot, but I think has been the biggest steps is, you know, it used to be, there were just the handful of, of wineries that were, that were making notable wines, but as more and more expertise comes into the area, because there are actual jobs here, um, it becomes a, 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 a cycle that, uh, builds upon itself. And we, we see more and more, you know, people from Europe, people from California thinking, oh, well, maybe I should check out Virginia as a, as a place to work and live. And, the more expertise that comes in, the, the better the industry gets. Uh, and and the, the industry is investing in itself. So there's a, there's a wine tax um, that's done at the state level that gets uh, pumped back into the industry uh, via a, a wine board. Um, and so there's a lot of work that's being done through those sort of investments that have been good for Virginia as well. Um, so I think, you know, the past, if you look at the past 10 years, um, there's a lot of folks that, looked into Virginia maybe 20 years ago and weren't that impressed and they've come back and are, are, are now like singing a very different tune. But at the same time, I also feel like we're, we're just getting ready to really start going. Um, the next 10 years will probably be even more exciting. Well, Ben, I have to make a confession. I was one of those people, you know, right. I, I remember 20 years ago thinking, yeah, Virginia, that's interesting, but not compelling. And then I was at a reception somewhere and somebody handed me a glass of white wine and it had kind of a little bit of an epiphany, like, what is this magic elixir? And it turned out to be a Horton Viognier. Uh, so it was one of those things that kind of knocked me back for a second. I said, well, wait a minute, maybe I should probably revisit what's going on out there in Virginia, because by golly, they seem to have caught on to something. And so really, even in the last uh, 10 to 15 years, Virginia has really hit the ground running hard. And I, and I think it's wonderful what's going on there. I think they're really starting to dial in a lot of the varietals that are doing well and continue to, to do well. And as you mentioned tonight, um, of course, Petit Mensang and Viognier, and we're going to talk a little bit about Cab Franc in a, in a minute or two. Um, but tell me a little bit more about your specific vineyard. What's the climate, soil, and other factors? What's going on in, in your neck of the woods, so to speak? Yeah, so we are in Madison, which is give you the geographical layout about 45 minutes north of Charlottesville. So we're kind of right on the line between what is considered central Virginia, um, the, the Monticello AVA area and Northern Virginia. So climatically we, we are a little bit cooler. Um, we're a little bit later in terms of our bud break and our harvest season than the folks around Charlottesville, um, but earlier than the folks in the North. In terms of the soils, so we farm two distinct uh, kind of places. So we have these blocks that are around our winery or around our tasting room that are kind of the classic Piedmont or, you know, foothills, uh, rolling hills, kind of heavy clay soils. 
you know, clay has a lot of different properties. Um, some clay is actually kind of well-drained and, and very suitable for red wine making. Um, but our clay soils around our winery are relatively heavy, high water holding capacity. So they tend to do well for stuff like rosé, light, fresh reds and, and whites. Um, and especially petite mensang, which we can talk about when we, when we taste the petite mensang. Um, but then we also farm a vineyard called Quaker run. So we, I call, we call the blocks around the winery early mountain. That's the early mountain vineyard. Um, but the other vineyard that we farm is called Quaker run, uh, which we're going to taste later. And that is, although it's close, um, it's only about 20 minutes, um, on the back roads from us. It's, uh, it's we're at best 600 feet of elevation here at early mountain there. We start the lowest vine is at 900 feet of elevation and the highest is about 1100. So it's up on the side of the Blue Ridge mountains on a steep South, Southeast, Southwest facing slope, um, that has very good water drainage, um, lots of rocks. So it was formed by mostly by a landslide event about hundred years ago. Um, and, and so it's a colluvial soils of granite and greenstone coming down off the mountains above, above, uh, the site. And, um, so it has the ability to both drain the water down to the soils because of the rocks, um, evaporate the soils off the, uh, off the soil because of exposure to wind and sun. Um, and then just the slope also drains water quickly. It, uh, on top of that, it drains cold air. So we're in Virginia, so we're a continental climate. We have winter, um, we have uh, spring frost. And so a site's ability to, uh, drain, air when, when we have these either cold, wet winter events or frost events, and then let the cold air drop down to the bottom and push the warm air up uh, is pretty important to a vine's longevity. So we have, uh, we have some, we have some of our oldest vines that we farm there. Um, and it's also, you know, knock on wood, almost frost free. So whereas at early mountain, we fr fight frost almost every year with, with wind turbines there, it's that the site itself is, is frost resistant. So Ben, you know, it's interesting because you're talking about a lot of challenges in Virginia that you probably didn't face in Sonoma, you know, so transitioning, I think, from Sonoma to, to central Virginia is probably a pretty unique thing. Tell me a little bit about your approach to winemaking at Early Mountain. Yeah. So I, I think the way best to talk about it is kind of in the context of what's happening in Virginia. And that is the idea of progress, the idea of evolution. Um, and kind of the, the one rule is to not make people, um, because if you just decide that this is the one way to, to do, do things, then you kind of miss out on a lot of growth and, you know, ability to increase your quality. PT Menzang is, is the perfect example of our philosophy here at early mountain. Um, so the, the first PT Menzang we made was in 2018. Um, if you taste that wine, while we like it a lot, it's very different than the way we make Petit Mensing now in 2021. And that is just because we, you know, it's, it's a grape that's not, doesn't have a benchmark. And so there's, there's not a rule book for it. And part of what we're doing is, is writing those rules and, you know, coming, coming up with intuitive ideas, testing the ideas when they, when they work, keeping them and when they don't work, um, moving them away. So that is a big part of, of the way we make the wines uh, at early mountain is this kind of almost, the idea of wine lab where you, you are testing your hypotheses and, and, and working to move forward. All of that is with the base of, you know, kind of good winemaking practices with the idea that, you know, there's certain things that have to happen to keep your quality. 
at, at a certain level. Um, but the other thing I think that is extremely important to our approach is, is the actual site where the grapes are grown um, and, and the actual growing of them. So because we have a more challenging climate here in Virginia, it's very important where you grow your grapes and that you're growing the appropriate grapes for the appropriate wines in, in the right places. So we would never try to make a big Bordeaux wine out of the early mountain blocks. That's definitely a round peg square hole sort of approach. Um, and, we, and quicker run is where, where we get our you know most ageable reds. So just kind of understanding that you need to learn where you're growing, what you're growing and, and take the feedback that each vintage gives you to, to drive your winemaking is really important in Virginia. It's not like in California where you can say, you know what, I want to make a Pinot Noir that's 14 and a half percent alcohol. I want it to like have this much oak and it's going to, you know, appeal to, to this type of person and, and, and do this sort of thing. It's really about knowing what you have and, and then doing the best for it, you know, the best use for, for what you have. And I think that's exactly the philosophy that's going to carry Virginia forward. And that's, I think, one of the things that changed that I've seen change in the last two decades in Virginia. Prior to that, I do think that there was sort of this huge experiment going on in Virginia where they were trying to see what they can grow and they tried everything. And like you said, it was kind of a wine lab. And now that they've got uh, particularly different parts of Virginia have different wine varieties dialed in, it's it's fascinating to see the quality of those wines increasing every single year. It's just phenomenal. And you can literally see it. Um, now you did mention petite mint saying, I'm kind of curious, what other wine varieties are you excited about right now? Well, I mean, Cabernet Franc is a big one uh, just because I think the way we think about Cabernet Franc is that it is um, while there are a few folks growing Pinot Noir in pockets in Virginia, um, there's the, the pockets where you can grow them are fewer and further between than something like Cabernet Franc. So it is our grape that like Pinot Noir expresses its place. Uh, so Cabernet Franc grown on the coast versus central Virginia versus the Blue Ridge mountains versus the Shenandoah Valley. They all produce these different expressions, um, and that all relate back to where they're grown. And so as a terroir grape, it is, I think one of the most compelling for us because it can be grown successfully in all these places. Um, it is, uh, as vinifera goes and as the Bordeaux varieties grows, it's, it is one that can, we can ripen consistently year after year, um, even in the more challenging vintages. And so because of that, it becomes a grape that we can embrace and then really start to do that dialing in that you're, you're talking about, which has to do with planting it on the right site. Um, and then kind of understanding what each site gives us in the winery and, and playing to those strengths. And so you'll see Cabernet Franc in Virginia that's made like Bordeaux. You'll see uh, Cabernet Franc in Virginia that's more kind of aromatic and delicate. Um, you'll see uh, stuff that's really ripe and almost Californian because of its you know, mesoclimate and soils. And then you'll see stuff that is you know, much more elegant and more like Burgundian Pinot Noir. Um, and because of that, it's and you see this up and down the East coast. It's like a, it's a grape that does well almost up to Canada. Um, and so it can be, uh, it really just does show its place in that way. And because of that, I think a lot of winemakers are excited about it. You see a lot of kind of place designates on the label instead of just making bigger blends with it. Very cool. Now I'm excited about it. And that <laughs> kind of leads us into our, our next uh, portion of the podcast. But before I do, before I get to that, 
I want to circle back to something you said about your your early years back in New York when you were selling wine. I'm just curious, did you have an aha moment? Was there a wine that you tasted that kind of took you back on your heels a little bit and went, wait, I'm I'm now really super interested in in this journey of wine. Did you have that aha moment? I had like seven of them. Um, the, uh, the, I had two great mentors and they, they would just pull out, they would pull out kind of basic everyday, uh, you know, table wines that were delicious, but they would, they would also pull out some, some crazy stuff. Um, but looking back, I mean, I think, let's see, you know, kind of more classically, there was some really old, um, Northern Rhone wine, um, from, uh, Jabalay Isnard, which was a second label of Jabalay, I believe, because back in those days they couldn't sell all their um all their cut routine. Um and so there was like a very old 61 Jabalay Isnard. I'm sorry, Hermitage. Um that was that was one of those aha, like this is what old wine can do. Um but also at the same time in New York, because there were this was what I think was the beginning of a lot of the smaller importers and this kind of uh, this thing that is now established uh, of this is a place where we can be more kind of boutique in the actual importing of wines. Um, there were a number of wines that, that, that came through um, that were, were really compelling to me, but there was one portfolio, one importer called Louis Dresner um, that because of the relationship that, um, one of my mentors had, um, and the fact that they were in New York, I just got to taste through a lot of their wines. Um, and there were a few producers, um, like, uh, Catherine and Pierre Breton, their Orgoy, um, Cap Franc, there was a Pinot d'Anis producer, I'm forgetting the name of, um, and then, um, a producer that no longer exists called Claude Roche Blanche, but all just kind of very small boutique French, actually all three of them, Loire producers, that really kind of caught my eye um, at that time. Interesting. Now, all the wines that you mentioned were French. Does that influence you in any way when you're making your wines now at Early Mountain? The thing I remind myself of all the time is that, you know, it is good. Inspiration is wonderful, but imitation is dangerous. And so I think what we try to do at Early Mountain is really taste broadly um, in you know, across the, the winemaking world. And so that means tasting the West coast. It means tasting all over Europe. Um, but I'm kind of avoiding your question. And, and, and the answer really is, is that I was, I developed a Francophilic palate back in the day. And so I still, I still drink a lot of French wine. I think well, nothing to be ashamed of there, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> but I, and, and so it obviously influences me. Um, and so I think in general, our wines at early mountain are a little bit less, you know, looking for power and looking more for grace, aromatics, texture, and stuff like that. And that probably is at least partially influenced from, from that sort of drinking experience. Well, speaking of drinking experience, we have now come to that part of the podcast. What's in your <laughs> glass. So I understand you have two wines for us to uh, sample today. I'd like to start with the 2019 early mountain petite Mensang. Tell me a little bit about that wine. Yeah. Um, so this, as I mentioned, Petit Mensang is this really a, a progression wine for us. Uh, it started as a wine that was made with a lot of skin contact to lower the acidity. 
and uh, it was probably 15 and a half percent alcohol, a dry wine. And I think we should talk a little bit about the grape itself. It is a grape that, uh, that does really well in our climate in that it can take a thunderstorm. It can take a hurricane. It just doesn't care about the rainfall. It almost wants to be rained on a little bit to, to moderate it. Um, and that is because it has, uh, these bunches that every grape is really kind of free hanging. Um, and so very small berries with uh, loose clusters with very thick skins and all of that makes it almost rock proof. Um, and, uh, has the ability to hang through weather events. But the other thing that keeps it kind of strong in the vineyard is the fact that it both accumulates sugar, it ripens very quickly. Um, so it can get up to that 15% alcohol, um, level if you're not careful, but has, uh, amazing acidity. So it's, it's very hard for the acidity to drop out. And so the early days when we made it, we were kind of worried about the acidity and would let it hang longer. Uh, we would do skin contact to moderate the acidity. Um, and then it was actually on a trip. Uh, we had, we took a trip to the Loire Valley and we were talking to different Chenin Blanc producers, um, kind of looking at their acidities versus their sort of uh, ripeness and realized that although Petit Mensang still gets higher sugar than Chenin Blanc, there's, there's something similar there in that you can embrace that acidity. And maybe it's, maybe it looks weird compared to Chardonnay grown in Virginia in terms of its higher acidity, but that shouldn't be a problem. It should, it should be different. And so after that, we really embraced, uh, the acidity, um, started taking it through malolactic fermentation and then really started picking earlier to bring that alcohol down. So this wine that we have in front of us here, um, is the product of this sort of growth that we've had. Um, and one of the, one of the things that we did, uh, was we picked it in three different picks. So we had an early pick that was about 12 and a half percent potential alcohol, um, a middle pick that was maybe 13 and a half and another one that was 14 and a half. So it kind of comes right in 13 and a half, 14% alcohol, um, which is still relatively high for a white wine, but relatively low for petite men's Um, and the other thing that three different picks does is it kind of allows you to layer in the different flavors that come with those levels of ripeness. So the first pick is more kind of orchard fruit, apple, pear, second pick gets into more peachy notes. And then the third pick is where you get into the tropical mango and, and pineapple. Um, and that's, that's really a part of our goal to, to have this wine, which, uh, because of its acidity, because of its concentration has amazing ageability. Um, but if you just push it to the top ripeness level, it can be a little bit one kind of one level. It's, it's all tropical. It's all power. Um, and so we want to find to have layers to have complexity. The, the three different picks helps with that as well. Uh, the other distinctive thing that you'll, you'll get when you're smelling, um, the wine, there's a very kind of yeasty baked bread, sort of almost champagne like notes that you're getting in the aromatics. Um, and that comes from the fact because it is relatively ripe and relatively high in acid, the yeasts work very slowly. So, um, they are, it's not, it's not the easiest uh, condition for, for yeast to ferment quickly. So, and we don't inoculate. So this, these are the natural yeast or the ambient yeast there. Um, and so the fermentation can last, you know, usually no, uh, more than 12 months, sometimes as long as 15 months. Wow. Um, and yeah. And that's, that's edgy. You know, the first time we did it, we were worried about it. Um, but we go back to this grape being like very high in acid and it's actually, it's self-preserving. It, 
keeps a lot of the bad microbiology out of the system because of the fact that the pH is so low, the acid is so high. And so we actually don't add sulfur. We don't add yeast and this wine can ferment for 12 plus months and be safe um, and, and happy. (laughs) And happy. Well, I got to tell you, that sounds um, awesome. Now, is that sold only at the winery or is there any kind of distribution for that wine? Yeah. So we have, uh, we have distribution in Virginia, uh, Maryland, DC, New York, and I think we just got into New Jersey. Very cool. Very cool. All right. I'm going to have to hunt that one down. And in your second glass, another wine that we talked about a little bit. Yes. Yeah. Cabernet Franc. So those it's, it's, it's not a surprise that we're tasting these because these are important grape varieties to us at early mountain. Um, and, uh, so like I said, Cabernet Franc is a, is a grape that we can in Virginia and certainly in early mountain tell a story with. So we made the decision, I think back really in 2015 to not just make one big Virginia Cab Franc. That's a blend of a lot of different vineyards. Uh, and so we started on this, this road of, making two regional blends. So we have the Madison County, which is a blend of our two vineyards that we farm here. Um, a Shenandoah Valley, which is a blend of two vineyards in the middle and Northern Shenandoah Valley. Um, and then now we're making, um, three different, uh, vineyard specific wines. So we have a Northern Virginia vineyard on the, on the Blue Ridge called Capstone. We have a Shenandoah Valley vineyard called Shenandoah Springs. And then we have this wine that we're tasting today called, uh, Quaker Run, which I spoke about earlier. Um, and Quaker Run, we, we've realized, loves, I mean, it has beautiful Merlot, but this Cabernet Franc is, is a special place for, for Cabernet Franc. Um, and we're basically ripping out Cabernet Sauvignon to plant more Cabernet Franc at Quaker Run. So we hope to have more of this available in the future. Um, but this is on basically the steepest slope at Quaker. Um, lots of rocks. And, uh, Quaker has this ability to do that thing that I think, you know, people that chase Burgundy are looking for, which is power and elegance at the same time, you know, having the complexity of aromatics, a, uh, a texture that is both long and deep, but like not just all tannin like Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, so here Quaker really expresses that part of Cabernet Franc where the tannins are long, they're persistent, but they're not you know, tearing your, your palate up. Um, and so you have this kind of almost voluptuousness that comes with, with, with Quaker run that is, I think really compelling, but framed in structure that is ageable and, and really compelling aromatics, uh, that, you know, hint at the, uh, kind of herbal nature of, of Cabernet Franc. Like if you really smell it, you can, you can smell some of that classic Cabernet Francness, but nowhere near as, you know, green or herbal as maybe the average Loire or even, you know, the average Cabernet Franc. It, it, our, our sort of warmth in Virginia tends to envelop that herbal character and just make it a really complexity note more than anything. So when you're talking about the herbal character, are we shying, as you said, you know, you're shying away from more of those grassy notes, maybe more towards, I'm going to guess, more herbal, more dried herbs. Is that the direction this is going in? Yeah. Dried herbs is a great way to describe it. And it's, it is, it's like the background note that like you, you have to look for it. You have to search for it when you're, when you're sniffing and swirling, because, you know, this is also from a ripe vintage. Um, so 2019 was a pretty warm and dry vintage. So the, the fruit tends to step forward 
in these uh, warmer, drier vintages, and then and then kind of like I say, it it, it gives the the herbal character a big hug and envelops it in its arms and and uh it's just becomes just a, a background note in I, I love those characteristics in in cab franc absolutely adoring i'm gonna have to also hunt this one down now um you're just outside the dc area as we talked you know obviously so if people are you open if people want to come visit if they're you know maybe visiting dc um how would they arrange to maybe come visit early mountain are you accepting visitors Absolutely. Um, it's still, I think it's always good to call and make a reservation, especially if you're coming from as far away as DC. Um, it's, it's definitely within reach for a, for a day trip of all Northern Virginia, Maryland, DC. Uh, but because, you know, in a way, um, I think, I don't, I don't know about wineries everywhere, but what the past two years in terms of the pandemic has does is make people search out um, kind of places that are outside of the cities and that have outdoor spaces. Um, and we are both. And so we have the ability to, you know, drink wine and, and actually we have a small, but very high quality food being made here uh, at a restaurant. Um, so it's, it's the opportunity to, you know, get out, enjoy really well-made food, um, drink wine and, uh, you know, just get away from the city. And because of that, we've had a lot, (laughs) we've had a very high visitation rates over the past, uh, 18 months. And so making a reservation does, does help secure the, the table. And they could probably go on Google early mountain vineyards.com. Yeah, our website is, is there's, you can, you can make a reservation on the website. Um, and we also, if, if you're not feeling the day trip, then we, uh, you know, like everyone, we've really moved forward with our internet uh, retailing of wine. So we can, it's pretty easy to, to order the wine and have it shipped to you and, a day or two. Very cool. Well, Ben Jordan, thank you so, so very much for joining me on today's podcast. It's been a real pleasure. I know that you're in the, again, the middle of your uh, post-harvest winemaking, so I don't want to keep you too long, but I will say that I am very excited about one day seeing a play on Broadway that you've written about your adventures in wine. I don't know what you're going to call it, but I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Yep. Yep. I, I'm looking forward to writing it. Maybe a Maybe another decade. We'll see. Yeah. Maybe name a character after me. Just saying. Scott is uh, at least a, we'll have at least two lines. Okay. Oh, good. You know, <laughs> and, and I could be a seller rat. That's cool. I'm, I'm willing to play that role. Once Perfect. again, thank you so much for being here. I really genuinely appreciate the time you took to, uh, to speak with me. Thank you for having me. And I appreciate the, t- the ability to talk about Virginia with you. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. And remember, until the next time, do good, drink well. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. 
Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 smart bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 special edition smart bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.